Well, let's return to the Gospel of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give, each, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also, uh, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. As you know, I had the privilege of preaching at a men's retreat this weekend, hosted by Grace Baptist Church in Woodhaven. And as the men who attended with me will attest, it was a great weekend. I'd encourage any of you who are unable to be there with us to put it on your calendars for next year. Throughout the four teaching sessions, those of us who spoke covered 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I certainly profited from the ministry of the other men who taught. The fellowship was an incredible blessing. Uh, I got to see some brothers that I had already known, got to know some I had not met before, and it was a um, joy to be around a group of men devoted to Jesus Christ. As some of us were saying our goodbyes, one brother came to thank me for my ministry, and what he said about the weekend I thought was very true. He said that it was the first such event that he had attended in which he never heard anybody talking about football. <laughs> All the talk, he said, was about Jesus and the Word. And that was pretty much my experience as well. But the thing that I most appreciated was prayer. Men gathered together Friday night before things officially kicked off, and then early Saturday morning, pouring their hearts out to God, praising him, thanking him, pleading with him that we might know him better. But that kind of earnest prayer didn't just happen at those scheduled times. It happened informally as men met and spoke together of their struggles and their joys and their families and their ministries. And then wherever they happened to be, whether it was at meals or in the gym or standing in the hallway, they would bow their heads together to seek the Lord. After most of the teaching sessions, we would break up into small groups of nine or ten, much the way we do at Spofford, with a pastor leading each group, and the same group would meet together after every session. We're intended only to go 15 minutes or so to discuss what we have heard in the message. Our first meeting in my group went much longer. There was a man there who had been invited by his brother-in-law, and he sat there listening to the discussion, which was based on the first verse of 2 Timothy chapter 2, which says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And as we were all discussing what we had heard in the message, talking of God and the greatness of his grace, this man just sat there 
quietly, but was clearly being affected by what he was hearing from the others in the conversation. And at some point, he broke in and began to pour out his heart to this group of men that he had never met before. I won't go into his story, but he's had a very hard life. And he was grieved because as much as he tried to do what is right, he kept failing. And it was clear he was suffering. It was also clear that this man needed to understand grace. And then almost every other man in that room began to help him do just that. Everyone, it seemed, picked up on a different aspect of something that this man said and sought to help him to understand forgiveness and grace and assurance. And it was a glorious thing. And then we prayed. And with earnestness, we poured out our hearts to the Lord, pleading for God to pour out his grace upon this man while he sat there weeping. Throughout the rest of the weekend, I'd look for him, and it always seemed that there was another man from our group there with him, talking to him, praying with him. He sought me out before he left last night to thank me, to tell me that I would never understand the impact that I had had on his life. But I knew that I was just a representative of all those men who had invested in him this weekend. We don't know what God's going to do with his life, but here's the thing. Whatever God does in this man's life won't be because of me. It will be, first of all, because of the Holy Spirit. But it will also be in response to the love and the prayers of men no different from any other group of Christian men. Men who are struggling in their own lives, but believe that their God hears prayer uttered in Jesus' name and uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. So, I would ask you to pray for this man. This is all being recorded, so I won't mention his name, but God knows who he is. Almost, after almost half a century of walking with Christ, when I experience things like that, I still hunger to better understand prayer. The disciples of the Lord had that hunger. They saw the need to pray. But after watching the life of Jesus, they became aware that something was seriously missing from their understanding of prayer and their practice of prayer. Our Lord and his disciples had been invited to dinner by Martha and Mary in a little village called Bethany. And as we saw last week, it was during that meal that Mary chose the better part by choosing to sit at the feet of the Savior and listen to him teach. Now, as we look at this passage beginning uh, in, in, at the beginning of chapter 11, we find our story opening up with Jesus sitting at the feet of his Father in prayer. The disciples had grown up under the teaching of the Pharisees, under the teaching of the rabbis. They watched them pray three times a day after the model of Daniel. 
But they were also reminded by the Lord in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Some of the disciples had been with John the Baptist. And he had taught them to pray before he sent them out to follow Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the disciples had seen the Pharisees pray, they had seen John the Baptist pray, and now they see Jesus praying. And they see a difference. This is why one of the disciples, on behalf of all of them, says to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. As they watched the life of Jesus, they became aware that he spent much time in prayer. And as a result, he gained strength and and courage and wisdom and power to overcome the evil one, to bring new life to many around him. And now they wanted to learn about this particular area of spiritual life. I think they connected it back to what they had experienced when Jesus sent them out, and they found that there were demons that they could not cast out, but Jesus could. And I think they're putting two and two together. You see, maybe one of the reasons that we didn't have the ability to do that is because we're not praying like Jesus prays. In this passage, we're going to find that the Lord offered his disciples a model of prayer rather than a model prayer. There's a big difference. One is a framework in which to approach God, and the other is a prayer that we pray over and over as a kind of liturgical act. But within this model of prayer, our Lord gave the disciples a number of spiritual insights into prayer. And these insights are applicable not only to those we might consider to be spiritual giants, but every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ. Are you willing to say with the disciples, Lord, teach me to pray? If you are, then when you pray, first address your heavenly Father. Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father. When you begin to study the life of Christ in the Gospels, you you soon become aware of the reality that Jesus was clearly a man of prayer. You find him over and over again talking to his father. Not Joseph. His father in heaven. You see him praying at his baptism, during his temptation, before the transfiguration, in the garden, in the night in which he was betrayed, on the cross before he was taken into the presence of his father. And those are far from all the occasions that we have recorded for us in the scripture. Prayer was a priority for Jesus. And in this regard, we see him practicing what he preached. 
As we mentioned earlier, last week we looked at Mary and Martha. Martha was upset with her sister because Mary wasn't helping to prepare and serve the meal. And then she got upset with Jesus because it seemed to her that Jesus didn't care that she was left to do all the work. And when Martha came to Jesus to complain about her sister not helping, what did Jesus do? He told her that Mary had chosen the better thing. And that would not be taken away from her. Well, that's what Jesus exemplified in his own life. Just as Mary put everything aside to enter into communion with Jesus, Jesus often and regularly put everything aside in order to commune with his heavenly Father. When you read through the Gospels, you're constantly seeing Jesus go off by himself to pray. And often he does so by leaving behind the crowds. He leaves the multitudes who had come to hear him so he can commune with his heavenly Father. Now, many of you will notice that this prayer that we have here in Luke 11 doesn't sound quite right. Because there's another version of the Lord's Prayer, and it's the one we usually focus on. It's there in Matthew chapter 6. And there are obvious differences. Matthew says that he taught them to say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Luke records Jesus simply saying, Father, hallowed be your name. That's not a problem, of course. The prayer in Matthew is taught in a different time and a different place and a different circumstance altogether. There is no law that says Jesus can only teach about something once. And knowing the disciples as we do, and that they are very much like us, they need to hear things over and over and over again. Matthew and Luke are clearly writing about two different episodes. In Matthew, Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer in Galilee as part of the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus taught his disciples a new way of life, he showed them the difference between making a big show of praying in public, as some religious leaders did, or babbling on and on like the pagans. There's a difference between that he was teaching them and the simplicity of Christian prayer. The prayer that Luke records here comes toward the end of Jesus' ministry. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to be arrested and crucified. So Jesus is teaching his disciples here a briefer form of the same prayer that he had taught them earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Knowing what we know, as we say, about those disciples, we can readily understand this. There are many places in the New Testament where we find uh, authors repeating the same themes, the same subjects. We find Peter writing to his audience and saying, listen guys, it's no problem at all for me to remind you of things you already know. It's how learning takes place. Repetition. Until we remember. And by the way, this is one of the reasons we treat the Lord's Prayer as a model for prayer and, as not, and not as the model prayer. If we were in any way obligated to liturgically repeat the words of this prayer, which do we choose? Matthew's version or Luke's version? 
Do we say our Father which art in heaven, or do we simply say Father? It seems clear that this prayer by which the Lord taught his disciples to pray was not to be viewed as some kind of magical incantation. They did not see some kind of power in the repetition of specific words. This is not a mantra. Having said that, there's no problem at all praying either of these prayers. We're constantly encouraging people to pray the scripture. The problem is when we shut off our minds and our hearts and engage in empty, or as Christ said, vain repetition. The point that Luke is making here in verse 2 as he recounts Jesus' prayer is that Jesus addressed God as Father. Every time Jesus spoke to God in heaven, he called him Father. The only exception proves the rule. As Jesus endured the agonies of the cross, there was a time when he suffered the full weight of God's wrath, which came upon him as our substitute, as our sin was placed upon him. And then, in that moment, when he fell under the curse, he cried out, not Father, but my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? But at every other moment in his life, Jesus knew the joy of God's presence and called him Father. This was even true in his final moments on the cross when by faith he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What is surprising is that Jesus invites us to pray the same way. We get to commune with the God of the universe as Father. The Bible says when we believe in Jesus Christ, God gives us the right to become children of God. And then to help us know that we really are his children, God sends the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we, have rec- we who have received the adoption as sons are able to cry out, Abba, Father. And that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. With the help of the Spirit, through faith in the Son, we pray to God as our Father, coming to him as loving sons and daughters. It's on the basis of God's love for us as our Father, that we come to him in prayer. The opening words of the Lord's Prayer govern everything that follows. When we pray in God's, for God to be, God's name to be hallowed, we are seeking our Father's honor. When we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for the establishment of our Father's authority. When we pray for our daily bread, we're asking our Father to meet our needs. When we pray for forgiveness, we're coming to a Father and seeking mercy. When we pray against temptation, we are asking our Father to keep us safe. As we bring each of these petitions before the throne of grace, we are praying to a God who is at the same time all-powerful and our loving Father 
who desires, who loves to do what we ask when we ask according to his will. The first thing this prayer asks of the Father is for his name to be hallowed. Hallowed be thy name. When Jesus taught this to his disciples, he was reminding them of the need to come to the Father in an attitude of worship. For while we know him intimately as our Father, the name of God the Father is holy and is set aside from all other names in the universe. He is above everything that has ever been, and his name is above every name on earth and under the earth. So we are to enter into his presence, seeing his worth and proclaiming it. We do not take the the understanding that God is our Father and imply from that that we can come into his presence casually. With a degree of familiarity that results in irreverence. God is our Father, but he is still God. I called my father dad. I knew what would happen if I treated him with disrespect. Or if I spoke to him like I spoke to my friends. Two things can be true at once. And here they are. He is our father. He loves us. And he grants us to love him. But he is God. And he is to be honored and he is to be praised, and he is to be worshipped. So it's important not to allow our minds to get carried away with one particular aspect of God's relationship to us. That is to be imbalanced. Our Heavenly Father is the one and only living God. He is the infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-sufficient, perfect, all-powerful, all-present God whose heart is filled with justice and truth and love and mercy and grace. And by having the right idea about who he is, we can then pray, hallowed be thy name. Praise you. All glory to you, Father. The prophet Daniel understood clearly how to hallow the name of God when he came before him in prayer seeking insight into the meaning of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The Lord answered the prophet's request in a night vision, you'll remember, in Daniel chapter 2. And as a result, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And he hallowed and sanctified his name. He says, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And it is he who changes the times and the epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to men of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To thee, O God of my fathers. I give thanks and praise, for thou hast given me wisdom and power. Even now thou hast made known to me what we requested of thee. 
If you're willing to be taught how to pray by the Lord himself, then you will pray to the Father and you will hallow his name. You will give him praise and honor. You will not come to him and say, Father, here's my list. This is what I need from you. Amen. Say, Father, you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of praise. And I'm going to spend some time now as I commune with you to just praise you for all that you are. You are omnipotent. You are glorious. You are merciful. You are just. And you spend some time when you pray meditating upon the glory of God. Who he is and what he has done and what he has promised. Oh, my brothers and sisters, I, I, I honestly sometimes don't know how to respond to people when they come to me and say, Pastor, I, 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 I try to pray and you know, within two minutes I'm out. I've got nothing to say. I don't know. Open your Bible, brothers and sisters. Let it tell you who God is. And pray that to your Father. When you pray, be aware that God has a kingdom. And pray that it will come in its fullness. Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom Come, when Jesus was teaching his, peoples to pr- his disciples to pray that God the Father would send his righteous kingdom to earth in all of its fullness, both the kingdom and the king were in that moment being rejected by men. So for the time being, our Lord was invading the spiritual kingdom of Satan. He says this, right, back in Matthew. The strong man has been bound. The strong man has been bound. And Christ says, I am plundering his house. Now we understand what that means when we see that same idea of binding in Revelation 20. Satan is bound from deceiving the nations. Not from everything. He's roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But he is specifically bound from deceiving the nations. That's why, at the first coming of Christ, the gospel went out from Israel, where it was confined previously to all the world. But the fullness of the kingdom isn't yet, because the kingdom is still being built. And so Jesus tells his disciples, pray that the kingdom would come in its fullness. It's already here. It's already begun. I'm the king and I'm here. And Jesus was always saying, the kingdom of God has come upon you. But we look around and (laughs) you look at this world, it's kind of hard to see. 
God's kingdom. God's kingdom is here because God is indwelling his people. We're his kingdom. We're a manifestation of his kingdom, but it's not in its fullness yet. It's being built, however. And we need to cultivate that desire to see that kingdom. That desire for God to establish his divine rule in the hearts of men and women now. We need to be asking God in this terrible, false, materialistic, humanistic society, how do you want to use me so that your kingdom can be built and I can be a part of it? God's going to build build his kingdom. Don't you want to be a part of that project? Should I have a Bible study in my home or my workplace? Should I be involved in prison ministry? Should I go out with our evangelistic team? Father, use me as salt and light in my immediate family, in my community, in, my, in, in the schools, in the, the, my workplace. Use me as a minister of reconciliation in your plan of redemption. That's how the kingdom gets built. Remember, we're not just repeating words. Father, I desired your kingdom to come. Well, how does that happen? That happens through us. So we're not only praying a wish, we're praying for God to use us in the building of his kingdom. When you pray, address your heavenly Father, hallow his name, pray that his kingdom would come and you would be used in the process. And when you pray, here's where our list comes in, be aware of your daily needs. There's nothing wrong with asking God for what you need. It becomes a problem when that's all you do. Because then you're at the center of everything, not God. And he becomes someone who is your instrument to get what you want. That's a problem. Give us each day our daily bread. In the garden before the fall of Adam and Eve, this prayer wasn't necessary. Prior to the fall, Adam never would have had to pray this. But when sin entered into the world, all that changed. Man was then faced with sweat and toil as he approached hard soil and thorns and thistles and his crops were jeopardized by disease and bad weather and death. Since the fall, mankind has been faced with the lack of physical and emotional and mental and spiritual bread. And so we are encouraged to come to our Father to seek what we need. Take that a little bit further. Why do we need this? Well, if we're talking about literal bread, we need it in order to stay alive. Why? I mean, if that's all there is, simply surviving another day, the world can do without me. I want to survive another day. 
and I want God to provide for all my needs, whether it be physical or spiritual or emotional or mental, so that I can be a part of his kingdom work. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, who is first in my life? It's the Lord. I want him to be glorified, and I want him to be glorified in me. And so, yes, I need stuff. I need a roof over my head. I need clothes. I need food. But the ultimate reason for that is not just to survive another day so that I can continue to serve him until he calls me home. Look at the requests in our bulletin every Sunday. One of the things that is included in this request, give us each day our daily bread, is intercessory prayer as well. We're not just praying for ourselves, I trust. We're praying for one another. Is one way in which we turn to the Lord for our daily needs. We don't turn to the government or the lottery. We don't turn to a lifestyle of lying and cheating. We seek to become humble men and women who depend on the one and only living God to provide our daily needs, sometimes directly and sometimes through intermediaries, sometimes through one another. God answers prayer through us. We always recognize, however, that no matter what the earthly source may be, behind that person or that institution is the gracious hand of God. If you're willing to have Jesus teach you to pray, then address God as your heavenly Father, be aware of your part in the kingdom, turn to him for your daily needs, oh, missed one, hallow his name, and be aware of your own sinfulness. Forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Once again, we are presented with a clear indication that this prayer is to be seen as a model of prayer. Certainly, this is a prayer which Jesus could never pray. As we come into the presence of a holy and just God, like Isaiah, when he saw God on his throne, we ought to immediately become aware of our own guilt and sinfulness and shame. We know that except for our relationship with Jesus Christ, we would suffer the wrath of God. Aside from the blood of Christ being shed for us, we would be under condemnation and judgment. But we have been forgiven if we are in Christ. That sin has been thrown as far as the east is from the west. And if we have been forgiven, then we are obligated to ourselves forgive others who may be indebted 
to us. That's the connection. If you think about all of the ways that other people have offended you and sinned against you, your mind is going to develop in a certain way. You're going to be filled with bitterness and resentment and anger. But if, when someone offends you, you think, rather, of the forgiveness that you have already received, it throws everything into another light. Because let me tell you something. No one has ever sinned against you to the extent you have sinned against your Heavenly Father. And He has forgiven you. And because of that, we ought to be people who practice forgiveness as a matter of course. Not wondering whether this person is worthy of our forgiveness. Were you worthy of forgiveness? Absolutely not. I don't know the things that you've been forgiven for, but I know you are not worthy of forgiveness because forgiveness comes by grace. And we are to extend that same grace to one another. I I, I am sometimes surprised to find that people are surprised that others have sinned against them. Like what, what world are you living in? I live in a world that is fallen and in which everyone I know is also fallen. I live in a world in which I am fallen, in which I am going to fail people, and I'm going to disappoint them, and I'm going to say the wrong thing. I am going to sin against people. It's inevitable. It's who I am. And I long for the day when that changes, but here we are. Why should I be surprised when someone else sins against me? Why should I think that I have the right to withhold forgiveness from someone after all that God has forgiven me? Are you willing to say, Lord, teach me to pray, then address God as your heavenly Father? Hallow his name. Be aware of your part in his kingdom. Turn to him for your daily needs. Be aware of your sinfulness. And finally, be aware of temptations. Lead us not into temptation. The word for temptation can also be translated as test or trial. As new creatures... As we've said, we still live in a fallen world, though we are new creatures. We're in this transition period, so to speak. And we discover early on that at times our flesh, the old Adamic nature with all of its weaknesses, tempts us to fall back into the bondage of sin. Now, temptation itself is not sin, and when temptation hits, we need to remember that because we now have the person and power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have the power to choose not to go back into that old bondage. 
We have the power now to let Jesus control our new life. We can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. God will not keep temptation away in this sense, but he will enable us to find a way out. In this case, we are praying that the Lord would not lead us or allow us to come to a temptation where we might fall. Twice in the Garden of Gethsemane, our Lord asked his disciples to pray that you may not enter into temptation. But at times in our new life in Christ, we need to realize that the Lord may want to test us to help us learn how to depend upon him for everything. At least that's one of the reasons. This is how Paul understood his own experience when he met with difficulty in Asia, a trial in which he almost lost his life. But in the end, the Lord delivered him. And that test, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he said this, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves in order that We should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Did you catch that? In order that. Paul understood that his trial was not random. God brought it to him for a purpose, so that he would not trust himself, but God. Likewise, James tells us, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Same word that we find here in Luke, by the way. Trials, temptation. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes God allows us to be tested so he can show, as he did with Job, that we are really his. In order to bring maturity and joy to us and honor and glory to him. But as we're seeing here in verse 4, it is perfectly good and right and appropriate to ask the Lord to guard us from that testing which would make us fall. What we've been studying together this morning, as you know, is referred to as the Lord's Prayer. But in reality, it's a model prayer offered to the disciples. It covers all their needs as well as ours. It speaks of our relationship with our Father, our relationship to his kingdom. It speaks about praising our God, our own needs that need to be met, our relationship with those who have sinned against us as well as our own sin against God, our relationship to the daily temptations and testings and trials that arise from living in this world system, in these bodies of flesh, with an enemy roaming about seeking whom he may devour. But God appoints all of these things for our good and for his glory. 
This is not a prayer that should be cranked out as a mindless mantra. Our Lord is more interested in motives and content of our heart than in the specific words we might use. Some 2,000 years now have gone by since Jesus taught his disciples to pray this prayer. Millions upon millions of believers all over the world, in every language, have approached their heavenly Father in the name of Jesus, his Son, using this as a model. Expanding it according to their own situation and their own needs. And God has answered them. And all of us who are willing to approach him in faith, believing that he, our loving and merciful Heavenly Father, is willing to listen to us and then to answer our prayers according to his own eternal purpose. And this is the principle underlying our prayers. Lord, teach us to pray. And it happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, After he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Father, you are our Father. If we have been adopted by you through our faith in Jesus Christ, you are our Father and we come to you as children to a Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you praise, Father, this day, because you are worthy of our praise every day. We give you praise, Father, because you have bestowed your grace and your love upon us when we were unworthy. And you have given us the great gift of your word, so that we might gather here today and hear your voice in the word of your Son through the word of of Luke. Father, you are a king. You have sent your son to establish your kingdom. And indeed, Father, the kingdom is here because the kingdom is within us by your spirit. And your kingdom is in this world being built as the gospel goes forth, Father. And men and women hear it and are convicted by your spirit and come to love and to honor your Son. Build your church, Father. And in doing so, build your kingdom until we experience your kingdom in all of its glory. Father, provide for our needs. You know what they are better than we do. There are some obvious things, Father, that we know that we need, but you know what we need in order to become like your Son, in order to be pleasing to you. So, Father, grant that it be given. Yes, 
food and clothing and homes, but Father, fellowship, a knowledge of your word, sensitivity, Father, to sin. Give us all those things that are necessary to be faithful disciples of your Son. And Father, when we fail, and we fail, forgive us. When we confess our sin, Father, be faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, give us hearts of forgiveness that we might treat others as you treat us, not according to what is deserved, but according to grace. Oh, and Father, keep us from sin. Father, fulfill your promise that you will not lead us into testing and trials that will be too much for us. Help us to see the way out that you provide so that we might live lives of holiness, lives that are honoring to you. And Father, teach us to pray. Give us a desire to pray as Jesus prayed and to commune with you in his name. For it is in his name that we pray now. Amen. Amen.